1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at toferarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Patrick Reardon to talk about his book, The Loop, The L-Tracks That Shaped and Saved Chicago, Patrick was an urban affairs writer, a feature writer, a columnist, and an editor for the Chicago Tribune for the last 30 years. Patrick, thank you for being here and talking with me. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So before I begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, I'm born and raised in Chicago. Um, I, uh, I I really love the city. I, I had a perfect job uh, working at the Chicago Tribune uh, for 32 years. Um, uh, covering urban affairs most of the time, and uh, that meant covering the whole range of issues in Chicago because uh, they're all everything's so interrelated: politics and development and planning, and uh, and demographics. Um, and so uh, I'm very aware of how uh, physical structures like the elevated loop um, impact the city. Um, you know, uh, in ways that, that are beyond what they're there for. You know, you, the elevator loop was built for a transit reason, but it, it had lots of, of impact. So, so that's the sort of stuff I'm interested in the story behind the story, the deeper story, uh, whenever I'm doing research on anything.
0: And so the first question I usually ask, particularly with this kind of book is, and you've kind of hinted at it already in your intro there, but so what specifically about not only this city, but this specific part of the city, were you interested in what led you to write this book?
1: Well, I, when I left the Tribune, um, I, I'd always, when I was at the Tribune, I always had an idea of wanting to write a book about Chicago. So um, uh, I came up with an idea of one book about Chicago that I was starting to research, um, which I never got to, but um, part of the, research was i had to settle a question that had been up in the air and i'd looked into a little bit when i was at the tribune but couldn't answer it and it was the question of how did chicago's downtown come to be named the loop and what what was divert what, what was really distressing actually was that i grew up in chicago and anybody who grew up in chicago just knew that the name the loop came from the elevated loop because the downtown is circled uh, by the elevated loop. Um, and yet there's this entire, the last half century historians have been lecturing Chicagoans on the fact that, on what they thought was a fact that the elevated loop had nothing to do with the naming of the downtown, that it actually came from a cable car loop from 1882. Now 1882 was 15 years before the elevated loop was built. So what, they, what historians, and, and when I say historians, I mean dozens of historians would put this in their books saying that um, this cable car loop or some cable car loop um, uh, had given the name to the downtown before the elevated loop was built. So as a reporter, any question that, that you don't have an answer to, it really gnaws at you. The problem is, when I was a reporter at the Tribune, I didn't have time to look into it. But uh, when I when uh, I was working on this pretty much full time, I realized, well, there's a way that I could I could do it. First of all, the Tribune um, uh, the entire collection of Tribune archives are online through the Chicago Public Library, so I could look at every story mentioning Luke. From 1882 through 1897 and beyond, it actually had to go beyond that mm. to see if the downtown was ever called the Loop, because the other there were other newspapers in Chicago at the time, but there's no collection of those of any one particular paper that covers the whole period except the Tribune, and the Tribune was the most right. uh, 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 that worked the hardest to to cover it. So what it meant was reading thousands of Tribune stories from 1882 to 1897 and beyond in order to see if the downtown was ever called the Loop. And it never was, but it it took all this time to look at it. Now, that wasn't the only piece. I also looked at contemporary novels, uh, memoirs, contemporary nonfiction books, and none of them talk about the downtown as the Loop. Uh, what had happened with the historians was that there got to be this thing where they all just knew it was true. It was kind of accepted wisdom that somebody had at one point written that the downtown was named the loop through because of a cable car, and they all just kept picking it up. And when you look at their sources, their, their sources just don't prove it. So anyway, so I got through proving that the downtown got its name loop from the elevated loop. But in doing that, I realized why did the name loop get applied to the downtown? And it was because the elevated loop was so significant to Chicago in 1897 and afterwards that people began calling the downtown the loop because of its importance to them and its physical presence. I mean, you've got this, this, this steel and wood structure that's a rectangle around uh, 39 blocks of downtown, 39 or 38, I'm forgetting offhand. And when you're standing on the ground and these trains go by, it's loud and it's it's it it screeches, um, and it's it's just you can't avoid it. It is just a big deal. Um, and so the what happened was as i realized is that the downtown the people in the downtown started talking about the elevated loop as a way of designating where the downtown was and there was a a progression of phrases that were used in the period from uh, 1897 to 1911 1912 that was that 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 show the progression of the way people talked about it um, and and I'll go into that right now if you want to just to I'll try to keep keep it real quick.
0: Absolutely. First of
1: all, first of all this thing is so big and it's so, you know, uh, 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 intrusive on the landscape in a in a positive and a negative way, that people started talking about immediately talked about well, the land within the elevated loop or outside the elevated loop. So, so this was a term, but that's kind of clunky, within the elevated loop or outside the elevated loop. So then it evolved to another phrase of um, uh, in within the loop, meaning within the circle of tracks. And then it was in the loop district, so that the area inside. So suddenly it moved away from the tracks and just was identified as the land inside the tracks and eventually loop district got shortened to loop and so the reason for this, this is right this is like it, it the same thing happened in chicago a hundred years later when there was the millennium park was finished in the early 2000s and there was this sculpture that was put there that was called cloud gate well everybody looked at it and said oh it's the bean they named it the Bean because it was it looked like the bean, you know. And um, the same thing happened with Rodin's sculptures. The Thinker is was not called the Thinker by Rodin; it was called uh, Dante or some or the Poet, I think. Mm-hmm. In any case, what what this what this indicates is the the way that people reacted to this elevated loop was, and and using it as a reference was was uh, an indication of, of how important it was, and it was important financially, it was important transportationally, and then ultimately in the long run, it was important when the suburbanization of the city took place, or the of the, na- of the nation took place after World War II. But that's a kind of long, long explanation for how I got into this book. Great.
0: And so you mentioned that, you know, how important, and of course we're going to dive into its significance of being more than just an elevated track, which of course you make a good job proving, but you met, I think there's some interesting parallels that could be drawn between this and what came to my mind was the Eiffel tower, you know, very recognizable thing. Everyone's very yeah. used to it and it's iconic. However, just looking into its history, there was a period of time where it was almost hated, kind of rejected and fought against, like I said, just like the Eiffel tower.
1: Well, that's the, that's the fascinating thing as a reporter and as a uh, historian. Um, you love to find something that, that, that hasn't been found before. And, and the fact is people didn't realize how significant the elevated loop was, um, at least the people right. in general, as, and the power brokers, the, the, the people who, who, who uh, the, the movers and shakers in the city. Um, because they were the ones that kept wanting to tear it down because the, the key fact of this is even before it was finished, the land within the tracks or the, the, the area that would be covered by the tracks was worth significantly more than the land outside the tracks. So by building this, right. you created the high value land in that area everything outside the elevated loop was was worth a lot less money than the land inside. And this was so significant that for about 10 or 20 years, real estate guys were, were jockeying to try to get the elevated loop structure extended further south. So if you could have extended mm-hmm. two, two blocks further south, All that land would suddenly be in the loop and it would be suddenly worth a lot. If you extended it, you know, four blocks south, the same thing. And and these guys would all have, and I'm saying guys because they were all guys in uh, a hundred years ago. (laughs) (laughs) They were, they were, they had land there. And so they wanted, if you could just stretch it out, then suddenly the land in there would be worth something. However, if you have land inside the elevated loop, you don't want to get it stretched out because that's going to pull the loop right. further south, and so your land, maybe on the west part of the loop, won't be as valuable as as it would be the way it was. So, first of all, it was this this real estate um, value that was that was um, that was uh, that 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 made it so important. Secondly, the elevated loop. Um, was uh, a a a transportation um, hub that had not been there before there were four elevated lines that came into the downtown and they all stopped several blocks outside of the downtown The reason for that was that the 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 city council and the business owners didn't want big l tracks crisscrossing the downtown the way the cable car loops had crisscrossed the downtown the cable car loops were were not intrusive they were just the hole in the street where the cable came through so that you it didn't get in the way but um if you can imagine you know four different uh railroad uh lines coming in and making their own loops i mean the entire downtown would have been covered by loop so they decided they needed one elevated loop and they couldn't they they didn't have the willpower to make it happen until Charles Yerkes stepped in and and by sheer uh, force of his own will and some a lot of deviousness, actually, uh, was able to get it built. And once it was built, suddenly, if you were on the far north side of Chicago, you could get on an L train and take it down into the loop, switch trains and go all the way to the far south side or all the way to the far west side. So what the elevated loop did was create this this transportation center that made that 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 um, that made it possible that that, that 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 tied together the city in a way it hadn't been tied before. You could you weren't isolated on the north side. You could go to the south side or the west side by just going to, into the loop. So it th- these these. This is how important the thing was, and yet the, the movers and shakers for years were trying to get it torn down again to open it up so that other development could be put in that would, that, uh, there would be more land that would be considered valuable land. Um, uh, the thing that they didn't realize is once, once you take down the elevated loop, there's no focus of the development. And so downtowns tend to wander and what would have happened would have been, there would have been this kind of, this sprawl of downtown, which would have meant that there wasn't the concentration of, uh, of, of develop or of of value that there was with the elevated loop. Does that make sense? It does. It's
0: an interesting point though. You mentioned that it, it sort of contained the downtown, kept it from sprawl. In fact, I think you mentioned that like, quite a few visitors from New York always remarked at how small and congested their urban cores versus New York City, right? But a question I have is: I, I think later on in the book you do mention that the advancement, you know, of public transportation did kind of increase the size of the metropolitan area, and it kind of encouraged suburban sprawl. I guess if I'm understanding that correctly.
1: Well, yeah the the it, the it was the highways, it was the post-World War II highways that, that, that fed the suburban sprawl. That's another example of you build a highway, you build a physical thing, but it has this impact on the on the way people live and the way people uh, 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 operated. Uh, and, and when that happened, of course, across the nation, big cities like Cleveland and Detroit, uh, places like Phoenix and Omaha, their downtowns basically disappeared. They just shrunk to nothing because all the, the businesses fled out to the suburbs, to the malls, because that's where the, the people with money were. Um, in Chicago, that didn't happen because right. so much money was invested in that downtown land that people couldn't walk away from it the way they could in Cleveland or Detroit. Interesting. And so you had
0: mentioned the idea of unifying the city, and I want to come back to that. But I think one thing that's worth talking about, you had mentioned the name Charles uh, Yurkis. Am I saying that right? right. Yeah,
1: yeah Charles so Yurkes. I know,
0: yeah. Another, you know another parallel can be drawn here. I think a lot of people you know, have read Power Broker, and they're familiar with Robert Moses and how his corruption helped shape New York City. I personally had never heard of Charles Yurkis. And after reading the book, it's kind of clear that he needs a book all on his own because he did something very similar. And his impact in Chicago, I think, has been kind of unknown for a while.
1: Well, it, his impact on Chicago has been known in a way, but it's been known of him as a bad guy negatively. I mean, Harold right. Ickes, who was on Franklin Roosevelt's uh, cabinet, who grew, who uh, had his young adulthood in Chicago, described Yerkes. Now, now listen to this. This is he describes Yerkes, who was basically a rich guy who was a bit corrupt, but so were a lot of other guys, but he describes Yerkes as the equivalent of the three World War II enemy leaders, Hirohito, Mussolini, and Hitler. Now, I'm sorry, nobody is that bad, and Yerkes definitely wasn't that bad, because not only did he set up the elevated loop, which radically changed the nature of the transportation system in Chicago, and as a result, radically changed Chicago. He then went to London, and put in the new right. level of the tube, or started that work that had been stymied for years, and um, would have would not have happened if he had not gone to London. He bought four uh, subway companies that had the 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 permission to create subways but had not done anything because they, they couldn't get the, their funding together. He got the funding together, got it all started, and then died. But despite even though he died, the stuff he started got finished. And so if you've ever been to London, if you can picture what it would be like to try to get around without the tube, uh, most of the especially in the center part of the city, there were two tube lines before Yerkes got there, but those didn't go into the center of the city. The four lines he uh, started um, served the center of the city and a much bigger area. So London would have been a, would be a much different city today if Yerkes hadn't been there, and Chicago would be a much different city today if Yerkes hadn't been here.
0: Right, and so uh, I know, and we'll, maybe we'll talk about a little bit, you know, kind of how things change radically in his tenure of Chicago. But I think another figure that you bring up in the book that I guess Yerkes was maybe remembered incorrectly in your opinion, but a figure you bring up a lot who doesn't seem to be remembered at all is the actual engineer and designer of this iconic elevated track.
1: Uh, right? John it,
0: Waddle, I believe. Yeah,
1: John Lowe Alexander Waddle. And, and, and the reason, uh, I mean, this is a guy who was a huge character. But the, all the pictures of him show him with these curly mustaches and curly uh uh hair atop his head the the only thing i've ever seen comparable to that are some of the munchkins in the wizard of oz in other words he was (laughs) flamboyant and he would wear all these decorations he got um from foreign countries foreign governments because of bridges he had built he was a foremost bridge builder In fact, he's still remembered today by engineers as a major figure in bridge building internationally at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So when he died, the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune each had uh, obituaries for him talking about how significant he was as a bridge builder. But nobody mentioned the fact that he, he had designed the elevated loop and the elevated loop was designed in certain ways. I mean, this was a guy whose whose personality was so huge and his energy was so huge. When he got hired to to design the elevated loop, he went to New York, which had the biggest um, uh, elevated system at that time, and studied it. To, you know, to right. the point where he was able to design the elevated loop in Chicago. In ways that avoided a lot of the problems that New York had, um, and when people, when he, uh, when he wrote uh, a paper about how bad New York was and how good Chicago was, there were a lot <laughs> of other engineers who jumped in to comment, and he just, he went back and forth with them. Um, he just, he just loved it. So anyway, there's this big personality, and and he's been missing from Chicago history, uh, and I'm not. I, 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 I think I, I never found any references to him um, in, in any of the papers except for a bridge that he had done in Chicago about uh, eight years earlier, which was a breakthrough bridge, but it's a, that's a whole other topic. But this, this guy was this wonderful character to find, and, and because he was so unknown he was a great contrast to Yerkes who was so, who was completely well-known, but, and, and known rightly as a corrupt guy, but he was, he, the, the way that, that Yerkes shaped the city was totally overlooked. Um, so anyway, it's, these two guys were just wonderful to find when I was doing the research and just to, to run with them, um, it, it was like uh you know if if you're writing something uh you really want to tell people something they didn't know and to tell them who waddle was was a great thing to tell them and then to tell them that Yerkes wasn't as much of a demon or only a demon as everybody had made him out to be was was also a lot of fun absolutely i, I would read a book about Waddle.
0: you had mentioned he offended. Almost every New York engineer, if I recall, he did the same thing with English engineers when he was a faculty at Japan with right. a similar
1: essay. He, he wrote a book say, telling the Japanese in a very nice way that all your bridges are crap. But it's not your fault. Yeah. It's because you were listening to those English engineers.
0: <laughs> I, so like I said, I mean, to kind of go back to it, very it was great to read about him. Again, I personally was not aware of him. You know, same with... You know, of course, the book is more about the social aspect of it, but it's interesting. You know, I guess as a practicing architect to hear that this engineering marvel doesn't use cross bracing so people could walk through. To me, that's crazy. But you know, of course, he knew he did it in a way that it works. And then I believe you mentioned that almost like eighty percent of the original structure is still functioning after all these decades. I don't think many of our buildings nowadays 75%. could. Yeah, seventy-five percent. Yeah, which it's is just, something I don't think most of our buildings nowadays could aim for. Right. And so I wanted to come back to uh, you had mentioned the idea of kind of unity. You know, if like you said, at first it was built as just a big elevated train. I'm, I'm sure they didn't realize the impact it would have, but there is kind of a very long lasting impact that it unified that area a little bit. I was wondering you had mentioned that Chicago is a city of, and I'll take a quote right here of sharp divisions. I was wondering if you'd elaborate on that a little more.
1: Well, that's that is the thing. It's it's. Um... Not only did it unify Chicago in a transportation way, and not only did it isolate this this very valuable property, but it, it made that that it made this the center of Chicago in a way that that uh, every Chicagoan knew this was the center of Chicago, and everyone, to one extent or another, thought it felt felt that it was their second neighborhood or wanted to feel that way and the reason i'm putting that qualifier in there and this was a thing i should have had in the book and i i brain freeze didn't get it in um if you were very poor or if you were african-american you couldn't go down to the loop as easily you couldn't shop as easily as as anybody who was white um so it was uh it right. was a bad thing in that way but otherwise Um, African-Americans got lots of jobs downtown. Um, uh, This was the place that that Chicagoans felt they were comfortable in. Um, And because of all the divisions in Chicago and and in in Chicago, you know, uh, in in these times, if you walked across the street, you'd be in another neighborhood that maybe the ethnic uh, makeup was different from yours and you'd get hit in the head with a brick. That's what that's what Mike Reuchel used to say. Um, so, so you you felt comfortable in your own neighborhood, but you were a little bit an, uh, anxious whenever you were anywhere or else. The only exception was the downtown loop. When you would come to the loop, you'd go to movies, you'd go to uh, to dinner, you'd shop. Um, you'd go to the city hall to get your marriage license or go to the court uh, to pay your uh your uh, uh, parking fines or, I mean, anyway, it was, it, it was, and it still is the center of Chicago. It's not the, the same way in the sense of the movies theaters have pretty much uh, gone. Um, a lot of the shopping has moved up to Michigan Avenue, but Michigan Avenue is, is simply an extension of the elevated of the loop downtown. Um, what the loop downtown was and still is, is this center of, around which more development has happened on the outskirts. And so there's this great concentration of, of uh, tall buildings um, that, uh, that's really striking, especially when you look at it in comparison to Manhattan, where there's a concentration of tall buildings on the south end of the island and then a concentration of, of tall buildings in the middle of the island uh, right next to, uh, to the park. Right, you make the uh, you make the comparison that
0: New York has kind of a spiky outline, whereas Chicago has kind of a mountain range for their skyscrapers.
1: Right. Yeah, there's uh there there was a really helpful book um by a woman named Willis. I'm I'm looking to see if I can spot it here on my shelf. I I'm not spotting it right offhand, but um she wrote a book uh about uh uh, the the different ways skyscrapers were built in Chicago and in New York, and that was just wonderful because it 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 helped me understand the difference between the two places. But the bigger thing um, is that uh, if if you're in Manhattan uh, uh, and and ask somebody uh, which way to downtown, nobody will know what you're talking about because. There, are, there is an <laughs> actual downtown. There are two right. financial centers. there are two business centers, uh, but it's the whole island is is kind of like a uh, uh, it, itself. I mean that's AJ. Liebling, who wrote uh, uh, this wonderful book, uh, wonderfully sarcastic book uh, in 1951 uh, Chicago the Second City. He just made fun of Chicago over and over again and he made fun of the loop because it was this small concentrated thing it wasn't like Manhattan where you know there were there was development rolling and rolling and rolling um and and he also added he was honest enough to add you know but but my friends um they uh, w- one of my friends who's who's fairly smart said that when he was in World War II and he was away in in the service what he would remember would be About Chicago was the elevated loop and the the sounds of the police whistles and the the elevated train and all. Anyway, it was he 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 was willing. uh, Liebling was willing to recognize that there was a romantic, sentimental feel to the downtown loop that there wasn't in in the same way for Manhattan. Right.
0: And so we talked about kind of there was a period before it was accepted of, you know, kind of opposition and people not wanting it. And then, however, I'd, li- I'd love to talk about the other end of the spectrum that when it was sort of accepted, everyone took to it in and, and the extreme sense as well. You have an, a whole chapter on the fact that it sounds like the city tried to plan everything around these concepts of loops.
1: Well, that was that was – got to remember uh, in the 1890s when the – that went or eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties when the cable car loop was was instituted, that was a new technical term. Um what a cable car loop, the cable car would come downtown and go around a block and then head south. So just it turned it around because there wasn't room for a turntable the way there is in San Francisco. So what happened was mm. there was this kind of Every transportation thing ended up. People were looking for loops, trying to create loops, bicycle loops and pedestrian loops. And in right. um, in one case, there was a thought of having um, an elevated loop with a uh, a bicycle loop on the roof of the of the uh, yep. uh, of the of the, the, the train structure. Um, so and so there was this so loop as an idea started with the cable cars as a technical thing and then it got adapted to all these uh, these other things and um, and as I said earlier the cable car loops in in the downtown there there eventually were six of them and and so each of them would only circle a block or two and and like I said they were uh, the cable car, uh, slit in the, in the, in the the street was, was unintrusive. You know, it was, uh, you could walk over it, you know, it, it didn't look, you didn't see it. But the thought that each of these elevated loop companies would come and do the same thing downtown was, was really scared off the, uh, the movers and shakers and forced them to decide we're going to have to work together on this. And then eventually decide to work with, with Charles Yerkes.
0: And of course, there's an entire history there that uh, I guess we'll talk about, you know, where Yerkes, you had mentioned, you you were honest that he has been corrupt and he was used to kind of being in the driver's seat, I believe you quoted. Whereas when it came time for this effort, he found a lot more opposition than he was used to, even from some of the corrupt politicians he had worked with previously. Am I correct? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That, in in fact... he he was able to get the elevated loop done and so it was it was finished in early October 1897 and it just started there was no there was no ceremony there was no ribbon cutting there and that's like highly unusual in Chicago when the first cable car train ran there were there were politicians riding that car everybody was all over the place and chicago was having parades and celebrations for just about everything you know um uh, the, the, the people coming back from the Spanish-American War were, were given parades and all this. So Yerkes was not given a parade. That's because at that time, even though he had finished the elevated loop, people were walking around the downtown area wearing on their lapels little, little hangman's nooses because people were talking about lynching Yerkes because he was trying to... <laughs> Because he was trying to sell his cable car franchises. Well, actually, he was trying to get the cable car franchises extended for 100 years, or as people said, a perpetual franchise. And so all the reformers were were, uh, congregating against him. And they were joined by about half of the corrupt politicians who saw a way of of uh, getting uh, an in on things. And so there were there were meetings after meetings where like the governor of the state talked about hanging uh, Yerkes. The mayor of the city talked about hanging Yerkes. I mean, this was, and, and when you right look- Right from up a lamppost, right? Well, so so everybody was talking about, uh, uh, about lynching Yerkes and at the time, it, I right. they were kind of overstating things. But this was a period in the nation when lynchings were happening all the time, not just in the South. In the West, lynching was used as a political weapon. You would come in and lynch your political opponent so he didn't get elected mayor. I mean, this is so when they're talking <laughs> about this, it's it's pretty scary, you know. Um, and so what happened was um, it his his franchise question goes to the city council um, at the end of two years of fighting. And uh, he's expecting his guys on the council to give him what he wanted. But instead, the reformers plus some of their allied uh, corrupt politicians blocked him. And this was at a meeting where uh, in the city council room, uh, there's a balcony overlooking the this, this city council chamber and all of these tough guys were sitting in the front row, each of them with a, a real rope with a noose on it hanging over the edge of the balcony. So this is the, the kind of uh, 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 pressure that was being put on the city council people. In fact, some guy... Uh, took a, a photograph, the photographer took a photograph and one of the aldermen thought it was a gunshot. And he he leapt under his desk. So uh, what happened was ultimately <laughs> Yerkes, Yerkes could not, uh, had to, had to sell out for much less than what he wanted. On the other hand, he then pocketed something like the equivalent of five, uh, uh, five million dollars um, to, which he was able to take to New York and then to uh, to London to do what he needed to do um, uh, in London. But but yeah, Yerkes, this is part right. of the reason. Why, and and the, the interesting thing is the mayor of Chicago, Carter Harrison II, uh, whose father himself was assassinated by a crazy Irish uh, immigrant, um, Carter Harrison later wrote in his memoir that he kind of uh, respected Yerkes for his brilliance and his, his, his will, and uh, it, he didn't like the, the way that he was corrupt, but he said, you know, uh, the problem everybody else had with Yerkes was that he was so, he was major league corrupt and Chicago, other business people in Chicago were minor league corrupt. So he knew how to do it in a way that was <laughs> to a highly professional and everybody else was amateurs. So that's why they didn't like him. They all were paying off at, you know, the city council, but he was the one who found the way to do it at least until the end when they were talking about lynching them.
0: Right. And so of course there's just so much more that we haven't even gotten to about the history. And so I, I would urge everyone listening to pick up a copy. So, but I'd hate to keep you here all day, but so I'd like to end uh, with the final question. So since the book has come out, you know, what, and I know it has come out recently. What have, what is your next project? What what's what have you been working on? What has been taking up your time?
1: Well, this is going to sound so dull. Um, I'm 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 looking into doing a story about Chicago's street grid, the 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 grid that was imposed on Chicago in 1830, um, which includes not just the grid of streets but of also of alleys. And I and because Chicago's so flat, the grid extends out into the suburbs and north, south, west um, in ways in, in distances no other grid can do. In fact, uh, one measure of the the the, the uh, size of Chicago's grid is Chicago has something like 19 uh, uh, no 100 wait uh, 1900 miles of alleys. Which is more than any other city in hmm. the world. So, so there's something there about how does how does a street grid uh, like that, plus other things people make and do to the land, how does that change the way people experience a city? In other words, Chicago feels different from New York and feels different from Los Angeles. Um, For a lot of reasons and and these physical things i think have something to do with it so that's that's what i'm doing and who knows if i'll ever get it done interesting (laughs) well if you do
0: maybe we'll talk again about it then sure
1: yeah well
0: i want to thank you very much for talking with me today
1: well it's been great to be here thank you
0: to everyone listening the book is the loop the l-tracks that shaped and shaved chicago